Hello, everybody, and welcome to Late Seating. I'm Jason Harding. Oh, um, I'm Steve Shives. Hey, Steve. Hey, man. I, I have to read something before we start. Okay. <clears throat> we do not fear movie history, for we have no wish to offend with improprieties or obscenities. But we do demand as a right the liberty to show the dark side of film, that we may illuminate the bright side of cinema. The same liberty that is conceded to the art of the written word, that art to which we owe Fifty Shades of Grey and the works of L. Ron Hubbard. Thank you. (sighs) Hey guys! You guys wanted to stick around when we made a horrible mistake. Well, ta-dum! <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. Remember last week when, I don't know, maybe I was doing opium or something, and I, we said, hey, let's review Birth of a Nation? Well, we did it. <laughs> we watched it. Maybe I should tell you guys what we're supposed to do on this show. Steve and I take a classic... <laughs> we take a classic film... And we give it a fresh review to see if it holds up to its reputation, whether that reputation is good or just a big fucking black bag of goddamn racism tied up and made a hundred million fucking dollars and changed the movie industry back in 1915. Yep. We we don't choose the classics. We just just talk about them. God, I wish we could choose the goddamn classics. And, you know, me too, especially this week. (laughs) This week, we watched... The 1915 movie classic known to anyone who's ever taken a film class. D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Right, Steve? Yes, or as Donald Trump voters call it, that documentary. (laughs) You used that joke for Gone with the Wind. And I will use it again. (laughs) I got it. I always got it locked and loaded, man. Uh, um, yeah, so, um, hey, Steve, do you have any trivia you want to share before we start with the firing squad that is the people that made this movie? Uh, yeah, in 1915, the year this movie was released, there were 56 lynchings of black men. Just a little (laughs) historical context. That's all. Hey, can we bring up the fact that the the release of this movie sparked the the new triumphant rise of the Ku Klux Klan? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Uh, And also that the Klan used this movie as a recruitment tool as late as the 1970s? Yep. And it was the first movie to be screened at the White House. Mmm, and Woodrow Wilson loved it. Mm, he sure. thought it was aces, boy. Well, he gets Let's go get it. an egg cream and talk about how great your movie is. He, they quote him in it. Yeah, they He's do. He's quoted on a title card, and you know, he must have seen mm. it, and instead of being mortified, oh god, they quoted me in this. He was probably uh-huh. like, get that Griffith fella up here. I want to talk to him in the White House. Yeah, he's great. We need more guys like him. <laughs> He's shown us how to deal with the blacks. Maybe he can tell me how to handle these suffragettes. <laughs> Hey, how about the fact that this movie started riots? Yeah. Uh, and and some theaters uh, d- uh, decided not to show it, which prompted that little speech at the beginning. See, I took D.W. Griffith's little blurb at the beginning of the movie that he actually added after the release of the film, where, you know, you typically hear someone who says something offensive, and then they put on their pajamas that have the Bill of Rights on them, and they say, hey, freedom of speech, right? That's what that was about. Yep. 
Yep, yep. So, Steve, do you want to get to the fucking people who made this fucking movie? Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about the people who are responsible for this movie. Great. There's not a whole lot as far as the um, technical parts because uh, D.W. Griffiths loved himself, loved his name, lo- <laughs> he loved him. It was directed by D.W. Griffiths. Produced by D.W. Griffith. Screenplay by D.W. Griffith. Oh, and Frank E. Woods, who I can only imagine agreed with him as far as the script goes, because if he didn't, it was a lot of this. Do you think that's a little much? Shut up! (laughs) (laughs) That didn't happen in the Civil War. I said shut up! (laughs) Based on the book... What's the book called? Based on the... Don't rush me! (laughs) Based on the book, The Klansman... By T.F. Dixon Jr. Yep. Uh, uh. A, a title that was either too accurate or not pretentious enough <laughs> for Griffith. Starring, I think it was the not pretentious enough I, part. Because, I think it was too. Boy, his title cards are fucking pretentious. I know, big words, kind of. Starring <laughs> Lillian Gish as Elsie Stoneman. Mae Marsh as Flora Cameron. The, I'm saying what they say. These are what the frickin' credits say. As Flora Cameron, the pet sister. Mm-hmm. Henry B. Walthall as Colonel Benjamin Cameron, the little colonel. <laughs> Miriam Cooper as Margaret Cameron, the elder sister. Mary Alden as Lydia Brown. <sighs> Stoneman's uh, um, mulatto housekeeper, because <laughs> that's important to know. Yep, it's a very important part of her character. Ralph Lewis as Austin Stoneman, leader of the house and wig wearer. They want to make sure we know he's wearing a wig. <laughs> George Siegman as I'm not even. I don't even want to say this character's name as Silent Silas Lynch. Yeah. Austin Stoneman's protege and pet psychopath mulatto man. (laughs) Walter Long as... Oh, man, as Gus the Renegade. I don't want to do this anymore. We haven't even gotten to the goddamn movie. Uh, Okay, Wallace Reed is Jeff the Blacksmith. Joseph Hanneberry is Abraham Lincoln. Elmer, Elmer Clifton is Phil Stoneman, the elder son. Josephine Crowell is Mrs. Cameron. Spottiswood Atkin is Dr. Cameron. George uh, Berenger is Wade Cameron, the second son. Maxwell Stanley is Duke Cameron, the youngest son. Jenny Lee is... <laughs> Mammy... The Faithful Servant, Donald Crisp as Ulysses S. Grant, Howard Gay as General Robert E. Lee. Hey, I, I, let me finish and then I'll bring it up. Music by Joseph Carl Briel, cinematography by G.W. Bitzer, edited by D.W. Griffith. It was, production company was, huh, D. David W. Griffith Corporation. Imagine that. Distributed by Epic Producing Corporation. Release date, February 8th, 1915. A day that will live in infamy. (laughs) Running time, 12 reels. Fuck, Jason, just what are you doing? Okay, fine. 133 to 193 minutes, depending on which version you got. Right, Steve? Yeah, we we got the long version. We got the super long with the the restored soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Just as it was meant to be seen. (sighs) Yeah, boy. You know, Carl, Joseph Carl Briel worked really hard on that soundtrack, which sounds like it repeats anyway over and over again. I'm just going to write 10 minutes of music. Who's going to notice? <laughs> I'm going to play it in a loop. No one cares. This movie's so repetitive anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Budget, $100,000. Box office. Technically, it's unknown. But the estimate is 50 to $100 million. 
which yeah. I think could have bought you Europe back in 1915. Yeah, just think about that in terms of 1915 dollars. You know what's funny? I just noticed something, Steve. What'd you notice? You know how uh, usually when I read the credits to these movies, I always have a problem with some foreign name? Yeah. Yeah, there's no fucking foreign names in this. That's, wow, huh. That's weird. Wonder why that is. A lot because they're just good old fashioned American names. That's right. That's right, Steve. Okay, now I've done something that Steve doesn't know. Well, what have you done? I wrote down I wrote down every title card in this film. Oh my god. <laughs> You poor man. Oh, yeah. It gets bad. So it's going to be an easy way for us to remember what happens in the film, because quite honestly, guys, I barely remember. Because a lot of it, it's really hard to concentrate when you're just tearing apart your sofa in rage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you got a nice little (laughs) writing exercise. Now, I'm I'm sure that when you're doing your own writing for the next few weeks, just incredibly florid prose will just start coming out. Oh, yeah. How come they don't use these? How come no one writes title cards like these anymore? D.W. Mm. Griffith, see, uh, for all this film's technical innovations, they had not yet figured out the whole show-don't-tell thing. They were more doing a show, 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 tell, tell, oh. tell, 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 show, tell, show, tell. Show, 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 show. Show, people show. just standing around. What are they supposed to be doing? <laughs> Yeah, we don't know. Tell what us are what they they're saying? doing. Don't know. <laughs> they seem to be chatting with someone off 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 camera, as near as I can tell. Yeah. All right, Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's uh, put on our petticoats. Mm. I guess guys wore them back then. I don't fucking care anymore about this time period, about <laughs> these people. Uh, and let's go to the historical drama, which is supposed to be historically accurate, despite the fact that there were people who had fought in the Civil War that were still alive when this fucking movie came out, and they went, huh? Uh, don't remember that. <laughs> That's weird. I thought I lost my leg for something different than what's in this movie. Hmm. And let's get on a horse and let's uh, stare at a really modern picture of a girl that would never have been taken back in the time. Mm. And let's uh, let's uh, uh. put on some blackface, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's stuff. They do it a lot in the movie. Let's stuff a flag into a cannon. <laughs> And let's let's go into the world because this is the only place where it actually exists. <laughs> yes, into the world of birth of a nation. Now, how I would like to handle this one is I shall read the title card, and we shall then discuss what happens. I'm not going to do it for everyone, but most of them, okay. because it's the only way I'll remember what the fuck happened in this movie. Okay. So I'll try to do it in, in an old timey voice, even though this is a silent film. Did we mention it was a silent film, everybody? Oh yeah. That's a silent film. We mentioned 1915, so just figure it out. Yeah, right. Okay, here we go. If in this work we have conveyed to the mind the ravages of war to the end, that war may be held in abhorrence, this effort will not have been in vain. Fuck you, movie. (laughs) No, it's an anti-war movie. Don't you get it? Bullshit! (laughs) It's a... It's a passionately argued anti-war piece. I've seen our anti-war movies. There is nothing anti-war in this. If anything, it's like, that first war wasn't good enough. Let's do another one. Exactly. It might be anti-war technically, but it's not anti-domestic terrorism after the war doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Okay, so the first title card is the because we got to go back this far, guys. The bringing of the Af- of the African to America planted the first seed of disunion. Yep. What do we get to see, Steve? We get to see uh, black folks being enslaved and brought to our country in ships. Yippee! And a pilgrim says a prayer over them or something. Yeah, bless and the, the sacred uh, institution. Yeah, boy, that pilgrim sure does look saintly and nice. He's blessing them, and boy, oh boy, the, the black people look vacant and dumb and. 
coming. <laughs> yeah, get used to that. Oh. Get used to that. And and don't you like the implied blame on the Africans? It's like bringing them mm-hmm. Africans here is what started the whole thing. It wasn't our fault. Well, that's okay. Now we're going to jump ahead a couple hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> 300 years later. <laughs> the card says the abolitionists of the, the abolitionists of the 19th century demanding the freeing of the slaves and we cut to a church and there's a guy up there and he's waving his arm around and we pan over to the blind people and they don't even seem to know they're in a room. They're yeah. just staring off into nothingness and then they kind of imply with the way the film is shot that they're using the the plight of slaves in order to raise money for their church because they pass they pass the the hat around yeah they pass the hat around are you detecting this isn't are you detecting a slight bias that's right (laughs) yet Okay, now we cut to, in 1860, a great parliamentary leader? You know, in the American who we Parliament. Will, yeah, who we will call Austin Stoneman, was rising to power in the National House of Representatives. Was this written on the moon? Who said these things about our own government? <laughs> Don't you love the 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 pretentious little storytelling flourish? We'll call whom we will call Austin Stoneman. Like that's not his name. Like <laughs> because by the way, we fucking made him up. He's not real. Yeah, exactly. He's not a real person. This is the story of the last son of Krypton, whom we'll call uh, <laughs> Superman. Uh, call L. Maybe that's his name. You made we'll him call up. Him that's Barry. his name. <laughs> So we cut into the the scene, and he's sitting there, and right off the bat, we show that he's wearing a wig, and they keep doing it over and over again, where he adjusts the wig, and he, he wipes sweat off from underneath the wig. For some reason, we need to know that he wears a wig. You can't trust a wig wearer. That's right. It means he's dishonest. Yeah, he, what's he, why is he trying to hide his bald head? But we find him with his young daughter, Elsie, in her apartments in Washington, in Washington. And that's where we meet Lillian Gish. Yep. Never really liked her. Aww. Maybe as an older actress. You're, you're you're more of a Clara Bow guy, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I, I like a little sauce. Yeah. And she's a little too sweet. <laughs> and we, we have this uh, little cut vignette where they, they do it a lot, where they just show the two people kind of like posing for a portrait. Yeah. Which I hate. Like, that's what, what I hate about that, Well, that's why the damn thing is three <laughs> hours long. Yeah, because there's a lot of it. There's like, they're like, they're like, like okay, five, we get it. There are these five minute <laughs> establishing shots where people are just you, sitting there. Like, all right, I see. You just told us that they're the father and daughter we don't need to see them oh okay well i guess we're holding on it <laughs> okay kind of wish and then we cut to some time later and we see elsie with her brothers at the stoneman country home in pennsylvania mm-hmm. and that goes nowhere it's just a bunch of scenes it's like watching fucking home movies without sound yeah. it's like grandma carts out the eight millimeter and said oh well we took these when we went on our trip up to the lake and we were snowed in but look at look at them waving at the camera i'm not saying that the characters in this wave at the camera but they may as well do it's just them you know no guys i like silent films but this this movie really does start to represent everything that most people hate about silent movies. It really does. It really does. Uh, me too. Like I, I adore silent movies, and yeah, there, there, there are. Well, we'll get to this in more detail at the end. But there is. There, I mean, for all of the the technical aspects of this movie that people celebrate, there are a lot of things about it that mm-hmm. are not so great. Hey, one of those technical aspects was about the extreme close up, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember seeing it at all in this film. Really? Mm, no, he would. No, I. Neither do I. There were. A, there were a couple of times where he would cut 
cut from a wide to kind of a medium, but I don't yeah. remember very many like extreme close And when he would cut to a medium, or maybe even a little bit tighter into like Lily and Gish or something like that, that's usually them not feeling anything. Yeah. As a rule, you want to cut in so that you can capture the emotional response of someone who can't convey something with words. That doesn't happen in this. It's usually some dickhead staring off at something, or contemplating something, and there's no real expression of emotion on their face. We're jumping ahead, but fuck you, movie. I don't, I'm not respecting you enough. <laughs> for, to, to, I'm gonna show how, I'm gonna show Howard the Duck more respect than this fucking movie. Fuck you. I mean, they're both fantasies, so why not? Okay, no, well, now we have to go in the Southland. Mm. South Carolina, to be precise. Piedmont, South Carolina. The home of the Camerons. Mm-hmm. Where life runs in a quaintly way that is to be no more. Aww. Because despite the fact that they, I guess, treat their slaves well, they're monster people. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And what makes a monster worse is when a monster doesn't know that what it's doing is wrong. And it gets angry when someone kind of tells them that what they're doing is wrong. So we meet the Camerons. We meet Benny Cameron, the eldest son. We meet Margaret Cameron, a daughter of the South, trained in the manners of the old school. What does that mean, Steve? She's an OG. What does that mean? She's a Southern Belle OG. (laughs) She's not. The old school of what? Of being a lady, man. Of women have their place? Exactly. (laughs) She knows how to keep her mouth shut and stand there and look pretty. (laughs) Yeah, then we meet the mother and the little pet sister. Mm -hmm. And then the kindly master of Cameron Hall. Are you guys picking up on something subtle here? Have you picked up on something yet? We're getting quaintly, manners, kindly. Mm-hmm. The pet sister, isn't she adorable? The pet, yeah, she's adorable. And they're all sitting on their fucking front porch. Yeah, they're nice, they're happy. Oh, yeah. It's so peaceful. And then and then we get a title card that says hostilities, and what do we see right after that, Steve? Uh, we see a stagehand, off camera, drop a kitten onto a puppy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised D.W. Griffith didn't just pop into frame and point at it and go, huh? (laughs) Symbolism! See? I'm a genius! Nobody's ever done it before. <laughs> hey! But they get a visit, right? Yeah, yeah. They get the visit of the Stoneman boys. That's right, because I guess they the 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 Stonemans and the Cameron sons like knew each other in boarding school, I guess. Or some fucking thing. They know I each other. It's, it's just some Romeo and Juliet <laughs> shit. The, the families know yeah. each other. They had a Skype relationship yeah, or something. Exactly. Oh, fucking. So they come down to South Carolina to hang out with yeah. their pals, the Camerons. Yeah, and then you see the chums, the younger sons. Yeah, and ones, yeah. And they they make sure to say the actual title college says the younger sons north and south because we want to beat you over the head with this guys we're, we're not going to be done until you get it well, and, and also because for some reason uh, D.W. Griffith chose to costume and hairstyle his male characters almost identically to each other so yeah. it's kind of difficult to tell them apart sometimes exactly. unless he has a title card saying here's who these people are <laughs> mm-hmm. and then we see these two younger brothers play Russell over a fucking a hat or something yeah. I don't know they're chums that's what chums do they were just <sighs> chumming about do. And then we have the next title card, which is Over the Plantation to the Cotton Fields by way of Love Valley. Fuck you, movie. I can't. I can't that's, do this, Steve. That's what they call it. They call it Love Valley. I can't. I can't do it. This is... Uh, all right. So what happens next? Um, What's his name? The oldest son. Yeah. The little... Cur- the guy who will become the little colonel. Yeah, ben. Ben. Yeah. Fuck it. I don't care. He finds the ideal of his dream. This is what the title card says, guys. Just assume that I'm reading from the title cards. When I start sounding uh, really pretentious and <laughs> and my, my, my language becomes more flower, flowery than usual, just assume that I'm reading a title card, yeah, okay? You'll be able to tell. He, he finds the ideal of his dreams in the picture of Elsie Stoneman, his friend's sister, who 
room he has never seen, right? Yep. He he sees a picture of his buddy's sister, and yeah, he, he gets a boner. He gets a boner, <laughs> and that is the start of this movie's big romance. Yeah, they're not going to meet for a while. Don't worry about yeah, it. <laughs> but he uh, he I mean he he maintains that boner like he's like he's you know taking and fist- the way they meet is not contrived in any way, shape, no, or form. Of course not. It's completely <laughs> natural. The way you would expect to meet someone. In the slave quarters, the two-hour interval given for dinner out of their working day from six till six. Isn't that nice? It's nice. They have a twelve. They have a ten-hour work day. They should. Why are they complaining? Yeah. Freaking. <laughs> it wasn't so bad. Don't hand me that. <laughs> they got two hours. I wish I got two hours for dinner. See? Yeah. Do you want to work ten hours? No. <laughs> And not get paid anything? Yeah. <laughs> tell you what, pick cotton for ten minutes and tell me you want to do that for for twelve ten to twelve hours. That should be that should be the test for any white idiot who ever says, Oh, slavery wasn't so bad. Make them pick cotton for ten minutes and then ask them how they feel. Mm-hmm. The gathering storm, the power of the sovereign states establishing when Lord Col- established yeah. when Lord Cornwallis surrendered to the individual colonies in seventeen eighty one is threatened by the new administration how much is that it's true well it's true if you assume that the surrender of cornwallis at the end of the revolution was somehow legally binding on a government that did not yet exist mm-hmm. hey what's this new administration that they're all upset about oh it's honest abe and those darn mm. republicans those darn slave loving republicans wait they loved having them they loved the snow they loved they they loved the people <laughs> but they didn't because that's like, the republicans i that's, know now that's, yeah it's come i mean i think it's just that the republicans today misinterpreted that and they're like yeah we love slaves slaves are awesome uh no cut to the stoneman library in washington where his daughter never visits why do we need to know that because this why do we need to know that his daughter never visits him in the library because does it impact the story at all it's where he does all of his dastardly planning oh okay and his daughter's not around to catch him being such a villain see the leader of the senate confers with the master of congress guys i swear to god there is no dialogue explaining anything that they are talking about okay it, that that what I just read is the only title card between now and when we meet Lydia Brown, his cuckoo crazy mulatto housekeeper. Yep. <laughs> it's just two old fucking guys going. That's it. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of gesticulating. If you like gesticulating, yeah. this is the movie for you. And we have no idea what they're talking about. Doesn't really matter, I suppose. Because if there was actual dialogue, you'd just have to write up fucking lies about that too, wouldn't you, D.W. Griffith? <laughs> Anyway, we cut to uh, Lydia Brown, Stoneman's housekeeper, and she listens at the door, right? Yeah. Hatches a dastardly plot? Does she? I don't she know. Gets... She just kind of goes a little goofy. Yeah, she goes a little goofy, and then when What's-His-Name comes out, she says something to him. We don't know what. We have no idea. He pushes her away. She tears her clothes open and spits at him. Yeah. The, the title card is The Mulatto Aroused uh, uh, The Mulatto Aroused from Ambitious Dreamings by Sumner's court, Kurt Orders. Wish I knew what those Kurt Orders were. <laughs> oh, hey, the hits keep coming, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so after that scene, which made no sense and we have no idea what's going on, I suppose we're just to assume, well, they're a mulatto, so they're the most evil of all yeah. because they're not black and they're not white. Exactly. And they're all crazy. They're, and they're, they're, they're Exactly. They're all ambitious, power-hungry, evil people. Because if you th- if you think she's crazy, wait until you meet Silas. <laughs> oh, boy, howdy. <laughs> 
Next title card, The Great Leader's Weakness. I don't know if I can finish this sentence. The Great Leader's Weakness, that is to blight a nation. Hey, Steve, what is The Great Leader's Weakness that's going to blight the nation? Um, He doesn't hate black people. Oh, He wants right. to make black people equal to white people. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Not Abe. <laughs> that's... That- that's the that's Stoneman they're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the weakness that's going to blight a nation. Yeah, black equality. This this guy who doesn't exist that was made up for the movie. Yep. Okay, so they're Forrest Gumping this family. Uh, uh, yeah, essentially, yeah. For if if part, Forrest yeah. Gump was an influential member of Congress, the only thing missing is that Elsie gives Lincoln, Lincoln the tickets to um, uh, um, our American president. <laughs> right. We can't go, Mr. President. Would you like to take our seats? <laughs> and then the visitors get called back to their northern home. The chums promise to meet again. Oh, they will. Yeah, they will. <laughs> They will. Foreshadowing. They'll be really close. <laughs> Young Stoneman's vow, the old vow, that his only dreams shall be of her, of her, until they meet again. What? What does that mean? Yeah, I guess the, while while other things were happening, the one of the Stoneman uh, boys fell in love with one of the Cameron sisters, mm-hmm. just so it's even, you know. And vice versa, yeah, because they have to, yeah, remember? Yeah. And then we have the first call for 75,000 volunteers, President Lincoln signing the proclamation, and he signs the proclamation, and then we get a title card that says, Abraham Lincoln uses the presidential office for the first time in history to call for volunteers to enforce the rule of the coming nation over individual states. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Damn you, Abe. And what happens is he signs it. And because this movie is not so tone deaf that they realize that if they besmirch Honest Abe, that people would probably rise up and burn movie theaters down. <laughs> They paint him as being so conflicted that after signing the order, he prays and weeps while kneeling at his desk. Yep. Mm. It's really taken a toll on him already. Yep. yep. You can see him aging right there. <laughs> <laughs> Then we get the Stoneman brothers departing to join their regiment. That's great, right? Yeah. No. Sure. It's not. They they say goodbye, they say goodbye, they say goodbye. One guy's they jump over. I don't know why they have to jump over a wall to leave, yeah. but they're doing they're it. Sne- <laughs> are they sneaking out? <laughs> I don't know. We can't leave the through sisters, the front. The sister's waving goodbye, waving goodbye, but shooting pretend guns at each other. And then yeah, the younger brother leaves, and then she runs back and she cries. Aww. On mom's lap. And then we have the first Battle of Bull Run. Yeah, or at least the mention of it. Oh, yeah. Well, they just mentioned it, huh? Yeah. This is not actually a battle. It's instead a ball on the eve of the departure of the quota of troops for the front. Yeah. Do you, you know what You know what they, they missed by skipping straight to after the Battle of Bull Run? They missed uh, the little historical footnote that the South was the one that started hostilities in the Civil War. Yeah, well, they don't want to mention that part, do they? They want to make sure that the North gets complete and total blame for this entire war. Fort Sumter, never heard of it. Yeah, what's that? Uh, uh. (laughs) Is that a new restaurant? (laughs) Oh, it's under new management. Mm -hmm. And there's a bonfire celebration in the streets. And uh, we have other little title cards like "While Youth Dances the Night Away," and boy, that's exciting. You've never, you have not lived until you've seen a bunch of white people stiffly dance. Mm, boy, uh, a waltz. We <laughs> childhood and old age slumber. So we see old people and, and young people asleep. Now we get this: the first flag of the Confederacy, baptized in glory at Bull Run. <laughs> Yep. Hey, what is that flag, Steve? It's uh, the Confederate flag. It's the stars and bars, right? I think yeah, so. Yeah, it's the stars and bars. I, there was a lot of time that I spent looking at my hands while watching this movie, which is hard to do in a silent film, because <laughs> you have to fix your full attention on yeah, it. Yeah, you kind of have to watch. Yeah, you can't like do other things and listen to it. <laughs> So then we have daybreak and it's time for the troops to depart and then they have the assembly call and then their state flag, the spirit of the south and, and then the 
the mommy gives it's the mother's gift to the cause, which is all three of her sons for the war, mm-hmm. and uh, all of it takes so fucking long. <laughs> yeah. But then we skip ahead a little bit. Yeah, and then Elsie, on her return to her aunt's home in Washington, tells her father of her brother leaving for the front. How's that go over? Oh, I forget. <laughs> Me too, Steve. I forget. Me too. I forget. Me too. <laughs> the middle parts of this movie start to bleed together. It just becomes a mishmash of awful. <laughs> I'm sure something. That's okay. I'm sure it was terrible. I mean, yeah, and it's okay because then we skip two fucking years of war atrocities, and we come to Ben Cameron in the and he's in the field and he's gotten a letter from home. And what's the important stuff that he learns from the letter? Steve? Uh, his sister's growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we cut back to the house where he's written a letter back, and the title card says, "Little sister wears her last good dress as a ceremonial to the reading of her brother's letter." <laughs> That's a crazy person. Yeah. Oh, oh my brother. <laughs> Letter got oh, here. Let a me... letter. I'm putting on my last good dress. <laughs> my brother's letter can't see me dressed like this. <laughs> well, it's just like in the modern age where teenagers get dressed up in their best clothes to read a tweet. Yeah, exactly. It's the same way people act today. <sighs> exactly. Okay. Here comes that, that first awful part. That Well, it's all been awful. But uh, Piedmont, scarred by the war, and a regular force of guerrillas raids the town. I'm wholly surprised that they spelled it guerrillas <laughs> as in G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A-S, yeah. and not guerrillas like the animal. But then I remember that the gorilla was still a mythical creature when this movie was made. <laughs> we didn't know for sure there was gorillas, so... <laughs> I'm not going to read all of these. Um, what happens in this scene, Steve? Well, ba- basically, you have a uh, a white Union Army captain who is called a Scalawag, uh, mm-hmm. who is leading a, a regiment of black soldiers. And No, they call it the Negro, Negro militia. Soldiers. Yeah, Negro soldiers. And he orders them to basically wreck the town, to, to burn the town, to terrorize the people, to raid Why? the houses. Because he's a Scalawag. Oh. He's a Scalawag. He's bad news. Steal and to, to chase the girls up into the attic, and little sister gets a little goofy up there. Yeah, she gets a little kind of crazy, and uh, they bust up the house, and just before they're about to find the girls, and black men might touch them. Oh God! The Confederates come to their rescue, mm-hmm. and uh, even though they set fire to the house, uh, they manage to put it out, which is funny beyond all compare. <laughs> That's the funniest thing I've ever seen because these old houses, once you set them on fire, they pretty much went up real quick. Yeah, they, I mean, <laughs> they were basically still made of straw at that point. <laughs> I mean, they were insulated with yeah, straw. It's, it, yeah, it's yeah. It's going to take more than a few buckets of water and a wet blanket, you know. <sighs> so then uh, they get rescued, and everyone's fucking happy and whatever. Isn't it terrible what the Northerners are doing to the Southerners? Boy, this sounds familiar, doesn't it, Steve? Yeah. I'm having flashbacks to another movie we watched. Yeah, it's it's a little it's it's a little familiar, just a little, a little bit. bit. Yeah. Then we get letters from home, revive tender reveries for the little Colonel. Oh. Why are they calling him the Little Colonel? Uh, he, he, uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he, he did, Why are they calling him the he, Little Colonel? He, he's not a tiny man. He, yeah, he's not little. I don't get the little part. But like he, he distinguishes himself <laughs> in battle at some point and gets promoted. And I don't know. And they call him Little Colonel. Yeah, because that's what you do to war heroes. You give them diminutive nicknames. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Now here's the weird part. This title card reads, "On the battlefield, war claims its bitter, useless sacrifice." Mm-hmm. You can't have it both ways, DW. You can't have these great, huge war scenes that glorify war and then counter it with "War claims its bitter, useless sacrifice." You can't turn these people into heroes for fighting for what they believed in, but then have it. You can't have it. That's those are two different meals. You can't have them on the same plate. <laughs> 
But uh, during this one battlefield, the two two to their promise, the chums meet again, don't they? Yeah. Hey, remember remember what was set up really obviously a few minutes ago. Well, here it yeah, is. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't a few yeah. minutes ago. A few minutes ago for this review, five fucking hours ago <laughs> yeah. for people watching it. About a week ago. <laughs> yeah. The the chums, the young the youngest brothers of of uh, both families. Remember at the beginning of the movie when you saw a light in your eyes and a fire in your belly, and now it's been tamped down and you feel like killing yourself. Yeah. Remember back then when you were still a human being that could feel things? Before you had watched, what, like a quarter of this movie? <laughs> like, uh-huh. we're not even halfway through yet. No, we haven't even hit intermission. No, no. Yeah, but the, the chums, the younger brothers from the yeah. Camerons and the Stonemans, they... Uh... Yeah, the Cameron gets shot and he falls on the ground. And Stoneman runs up and he raises his bayonet to stab him. They recognize each other. They're like, hey, how you doing, man? And he's like, I'm good, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine. I mean, I've been fighting in this war, but, you know, that pretty much sucks. Um, do you guys have any more sisters? Because we have, like, a, some brothers. We should really intermarry these families families a lot. What do you think? I think this is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just a second. Um, someone's delivering a bullet to me. Bang! Ah! And then he falls down and then he dies, like, right on top of yeah. the Cameron boy. And they died together. They, isn't that sad? Brother against brother. War is just awful, isn't it? Mm, yeah, that's the whole point of this yep. movie, right? It's, it's anti-war. That's what, I was, that's what I've been trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. It's a very somber movie about war. So then the Cameron family finds out about uh, him being dead and others also read war sad page which I think is about the Stonemans that have been relocated to others yeah <laughs> and then we cut to scenes of the Cameron family selling their shit because their cause is failing <laughs> Uh, oh, but Elsie, Elsie uh, becomes a nurse, Yeah, right? she volunteers to be a nurse mm-hmm. at an army hospital. In an army hospital. I mean, that, <sighs> that probably won't come up again. That probably won't wind up being like a plot contrivance or anything. No, probably no, not. no, no. And then we get, while the men and children weep, a great conqueror marches to the sea. What they what they talking about, they're, Steve? They're talking, <laughs> they're talking about uh, General Sherman's march to the sea, and at this point... General Sherman, the man who actually understood the horrors of yeah. war and didn't like it, but knew what had to get done yeah. in order to maintain this perfect union and 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 at this point in the movie while i'm watching it i'm thinking oh finally someone to root for and then i'm and 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 then i think you know as long as they're revising history anyway why not just have him walk through and burn every goddamn city in the south (laughs) that is my i think i've told you that that has always been my like weird fantasy when i'm really angry about what happened the events of the civil war i'm just like just let sherman do it he squared it in his head he's gonna carry a lot of guilt no matter what you do just turn him loose just say go man go give him the entire union army please because buchanan sucks dick (laughs) (laughs) so then we see um the burning of atlanta and then the second cameron's son dies and then we have the last great days of the confederacy i'm I'm gonna read it like this from here on out on the battle lines (laughs) before petersburg parched corn their only rations oh darn well it's not like you don't deserve it motherfucker you only went to war to preserve slavery yeah (laughs) that's all a sorely needed food train of the confederates is misled on the wrong road and cut off from the other side of the union lines why are we seeing this yeah, I, I, to, to really hammer home the fact that things suck for the Confederacy, I guess. Like, uh... General Lee orders an attempt to break through and rescue the food train. A bombardment and a flanking movement are started to cover the charge. I think they're trying to say that they're, at this point they're just fighting for food. Yeah. <laughs> We just need to stay alive at this point. <laughs> and then we have more fucking 
fighting and fighting and distance shots and cannons and bullshit. It's a long fucking battle yeah, scene. Yeah, if, if, you, if, you, if you like watching silent home movies of Civil War reenactments that just go on forever, this is for you. Mm-hmm. This is your part of the movie right here. Yeah, and here's the only bit. The little colonel leads the final desperate assault against the Union command of Captain Phil Stoneman. Uh, dun dun dun! That's another incredible coincidence. <laughs> yeah, hey, it's... I... <laughs> you would... I mean, it's really incredible that in these armies that each have hundreds of thousands of people that, that the Stonemans and the Camerons would keep bumping into each other like this. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the only time where the title cards actually are convenient because if they didn't have them, you wouldn't know fuck all of what's going on. All of the fighting looks exactly the same. All of the shooting looks exactly the same. All of the shots, except for some of the writing shots where they're writing behind a truck, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> look exactly the same. But then the little colonel fights and he gets hurt right yeah this is where he 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 runs he's one of the last people in his group that actually survive and make it up to the union line and this is where you see the famous shot that i made a joke about earlier where he takes the flag and stuffs it into the union cannon and then yeah, he like which doesn't jam the canyon awfully and then make the cannon explode nope. but you know <laughs> and then he collapses and and, and yeah. captain stoneman recognizes him and so he's he's saved like he's captured but he's he's not killed yeah and uh news of the death of their second son and the eldest being near death in a Washington hospital. So he's taken up to a Washington hospital. Oh, that's weird. Oh, what's gonna happen there? Hey, isn't that where Elsie is a nurse? Oh, maybe. <laughs> Probably not. I can't remember. <laughs> that would be that would be too convenient. Who's Elsie again? Yeah, right. the... <laughs> we just spent three hours watching a fucking uh, black and white fucking ward picture. <sighs> so we're at back at the military hospital. There's a couple of things here that I don't even remember what they had. One title card is War, the Breeder of Hate. And the second one is the woman's part, which could be dirty if you want to. Mm. If you guys want to get a little, like, the woman's part mm. is like her boob, guys. It, I don't it know. It was pre-code. It was pre-code, but boy, you wouldn't be able to tell from uh, this yeah, fucking movie. Uh, yeah. The little colonel in the military hospital set up in the patent's office where Elsie Stoneman is a nurse. Thanks for telling us that again, because we didn't see this coming from a million miles away. <laughs> That's right. We're going there. It's going to happen. <laughs> and then the creepiest thing ever happens. She meets him. She's tending him. And he's like... Though we have never met, I have carried you about with me for a long, long time. And she's not immediately creeped out. <laughs> no. <laughs> she's like, oh, that's so nice. You don't understand on those those long nights where we are eating nothing but corn cobs, I get a little randy in the pants. So I look at your picture and I jerk it. And then I give it to my boys because they don't have pictures of girls. The, the picture that you stole from my brother? Yeah, that one, that picture. Sure, yeah, why not? I'm pretty sure your brother was jerking it too to the same picture. <laughs> I mean, you're like 20th century hot. (laughs) All these 19th century babes got nothing on you. (sighs) So then Mama Cameron comes all the way up from Piedmont across enemy lines. Yeah. They let her through. She's a she's a, a gold star mother. She's a mommy. She's a woman. Yeah. She won't be doing anything. <laughs> she's a woman. She poses no threat. And she even tells the guys, I'm going into that room with my boy and you can shoot me if you want. So she doesn't get stopped until she gets to the yeah. hospital. <laughs> then they remember security. Oh, shit. We should probably stop her. And the army surgeon... Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> the army surgeon tells of a secret influence that has condemned Colonel Cameron to be hanged as a gorilla. Hey, um, did we do that a lot during uh, the Civil War, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we hanged people <sighs> just for being prisoners of war. Like, he didn't commit any war crimes. Mm-hmm. But uh, just because we have this thing that was completely and totally fabricated for the film, we need totally, completely and totally fabricate a realistic thing in order to get him out of it, right? Yeah, so, you know, uh, Mrs. Cameron finds out that her son's going to be hanged for some right. reason. So, uh-huh. so she goes to President Lincoln, who, oh, who doesn't have better shit to do, I'm sure. No, he doesn't. He's not in the middle of a war or nothing. And she's like, hey, man, uh, my son's in the hospital, and apparently you're going to hang him. Could you maybe not? And he's like, uh, okay. All no right. Problem. You've touched my heart. He just wanted to get and her out of like, the room. He's like, I'm planning the yeah. final assault. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm yeah. getting ready to write back to General Grant. You need to just get out of here. Yeah, fine. I won't hang your son. Go get out. Yeah. So then, as soon as her son's okay, she goes back to Piedmont because now uh, Father Cameron is sick. Yeah. Or failing, He's failing or yeah. something. And then we cut to uh, Appomattox Courthouse. Yeah. Where, where, where we, 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 we spend a few minutes with actual historical figures again. Yeah. yeah. Doing doing. Yeah. They're just like Robert E. Lee is drunk. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm General sorry. Grant, Grant is drunk. Lee, might Lee is like, what have I done to my career? <laughs> this please don't take please don't take my land and turn it into a cemetery. Yeah, that would just be awful if you did and, that. And we're like, fuck you. <laughs> Grant's like, that's a great idea, man. <laughs> you got a new crop. You have a new crop. It's called Union Soldiers. Yeah. I, I I need to interject right here. Of all the things that happened in the course of the war, the symbolism of turning Robert E. Lee's land into Arlington Cemetery, where they buried Union soldiers, is I, I don't think a writer could have come up with yeah. that on their own. That is, it, it's almost too good to be real but it is it's what happened well, and and you know the the um the government official who made that decision lost a son in the war so yeah. it was personal for him it was it was his way of giving mm-hmm. the finger to robert e lee saying i'm going you your your war killed my son so i'm gonna put the yeah. cemetery in your backyard buddy yeah your sense this is what your sense of honor got yeah. you fuck yeah. off which is which is especially sweet because the the romanticization of uh general lee is one of my least favorite parts of of like civil war culture <laughs> i just can't cannot stand yeah. any of that shit. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, the end of state sovereignty. The soul of Daniel Webster calling to America. Liberty and union. One and inseparable. Now and forever. Steve, are they saying that ironically or do they mean it? I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> what I did notice, here, what, what I noticed was, and this tells you, just in case you haven't gotten the hint yet this far into the movie, <laughs> where D.W. Griffith's loyalties lie as a filmmaker. He's, yeah. he's, he's writing a title card for the end of the Civil War. And the thing, mm-hmm. and the end of something that he chooses to note is supposedly state sovereignty. not Which it didn't end. Yeah, not the end of slavery, <laughs> no. the end of state sovereignty. That's the thing that he that right. he writes sadly about. Oh, doh, isn't this terrible? But then he quotes Daniel Webster. Liberty and union, one and inseparable, now and forever. Yeah. So is he celebrating the end of the war it's too? It's very confusing. And and he, he, he repeats that, that quote at the end. And yeah, I, <sighs> I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think he really, I think he just read that quote and thought, that sounds nice. That sounds like Shakespearean. Yep. Liberty and Union, one and inseparable. Sure. We'll just mm-hmm. throw that in. We're not done yet. We haven't even hit intermission yet, guys. Uh, nope. So then fucking the little colonel goes home and they, they, they have a feast of parched corn and sweet potato coffee. Uh, they call cotton southern ermine. Get it? <laughs> 
Then we cut to a scene of uh, Papa Stoneman protesting against Lincoln's policy of clemency for the South. Yeah. And he says their leaders must be hanged and their st- and their streets treated as conquered provinces. And of course, since they really don't want to paint Lincoln in a negative light, they have Lincoln say, I shall deal with them as though they have never been away. Phew! <laughs> Uh, and then we have the South under Lincoln's fostering hand goes to work to rebuild itself. And more bullshit, and then more bullshit, and then came the fated night of April 14th, 1865, where Southern hatred took one of the greatest presidential leaders this country has ever... Oh, I'm sorry, we're not saying that. You're talking we're about s- the actual I- history. <laughs> Where we get to watch Lincoln get assassinated at Ford's Theater. (laughs) They tell us what the play is. They tell us the times when the president gets there. They have uh, uh, the time when uh, Lincoln's personal bodyguard uh, takes his post outside. We get a view of the play because we need to add more time to this fucking movie. And the bodyguard leaves his post. And then John Wilkes Booth is standing there going, hey, everybody, I'm evil. (laughs) Yeah, for like ten minutes. And... (laughs) By the way, that's all we get. It just says his name. John Wilkes Booth. Not who John Wilkes Booth was. Or why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, hey guys, look, it's John Wilkes Booth. Dun, yeah. He's going to shoot the president for some reason. Who? And then he does it. <laughs> yeah. And the whole theater goes ape shit. And then uh, Stoneman is told that uh, Lincoln has been assassinated. And his crazy mulatto housekeeper <laughs> says, now you're now you're the greatest power in America. And this is where we start straying directly into completely made up fucking fiction that never happened. Oh, yeah. It really goes off the rails from this Holy point Holy sh- From this point forward, this is a fiction narrative. There is nothing in here that's real. Nope. And um, the South finds out and someone says, our best friend is gone. What is to become of us now? Which I'm fairly certain was not the sentiment in the South no, and, when Lincoln was and killed. It should not even be this. It doesn't even make sense in this movie because this movie does show us that the election of Lincoln was the trigger that caused Southern mm-hmm. secession. So I was like, you assholes. You, you went to war when the guy got elected and now you're saying our best friend is gone. You go to hell. You fucking Despite people. news reports and newspapers celebrating the fact that Lincoln was dead and people cheering on the streets that Lincoln was dead and everyone in the South relatively being happy that Lincoln was was assassinated. Nope, and, they're all sad. And none of the characters in this movie up to this point having a single good thing to say about Lincoln. Nope. I mean, it's just all of a sudden like, oh no, Lincoln's gone. How terrible. Go to hell. So, yeah, now we have intermission. And this is the part where you leave the theater and you really, yeah, really, you leave really the seriously... theater and you think about throwing yourself in front of a trolley car. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not... The question isn't do I go back into the movie? The question is, do I continue to live? Hey there, Mr. Harding. Did you catch a flicker show mr harding mr harding no oh lord oh god (laughs) (laughs) poor jamoke it looked like he lost his whole family hey birth of a nation that must be some picture i bet that hasn't even ended yet i'm going in (laughs) let me go check it out there's an i know there's an open seat (laughs) so part two the birth the birth of a nation second part reconstruction in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? This is where they didn't so much reconstruct as holy fabricate. <laughs> <laughs> the the made-up parts. This is a fever dream by a racist. <laughs> this yeah, exactly. is exactly. This is how, this is what they wanted to have a have a This is exactly. what they wish history was. It's a lost cause Confederate sympathizer racist masturbation fantasy. <laughs> 
The agony which the South endured that a nation might be born. The blight of war does not end when hostilities cease. (sighs) And then they have to outright hit us with that it's a historical presentation of the Civil War and Reconstruction period, and it is not meant to reflect on any race or people of today. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you movie. Just That's, because you said it doesn't make it true. Exactly. That is the equivalent of of saying, now, what I'm about to say isn't meant to offend anybody, and then you start telling the but. most racist joke <laughs> in the world. Yeah, it's like, you no. If you didn't want to reflect poorly on any race of people today, then don't do what you're about mm-hmm. to do, genius. You don't get to wash your hands up and say, hey, I didn't mean nothing by it, but boy, those black people sure are lazy and uncivilized, huh? huh? So right out of the gate, we get excerpts from Woodrow Wilson's History of the American people and i'd like to point out that woodrow wilson is not much of a historian no in which he says quote adventurers swarmed out of north america as much enemies of the one race as of the other to cozen beguile and use the negroes in the villages the negroes were the office holders men who knew none of the uses of authority except its insolence now you might mm-hmm. think that's not that can't be that bad right but he basically says they're idiots and they don't yeah. know what they're doing yeah <laughs> but he goes on the policy of congressional leaders wrought a very veritable overthrow of civilization in the South, in their determination to put the white South under the heel of the black South. No, it didn't. You're insane. And also, by the way, did you notice how many um, dashes there are in his quotes? Yeah, it seems a little truncated, doesn't it? It seems a little like they were cherry picking. (laughs) Oh, good, we're all done. Oh, nope. The white men were aroused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the sound to protect the southern country. Self-preservation. Can we pretend the movie's over, please? (laughs) Please. Well, since he just basically told us what's going to happen in this part of the movie. (laughs) I mean, it's still like an hour till the guy founds the Klan, but Woodrow Wilson just spoiled it. Okay, so the first title card says, The executive mansion of the nation has shifted from the White House to this strange house on the Capitol Hill. What do we see? What happens? Who do we uh, meet? Well, there's there's a bunch of people at Stoneman's house, and uh, we meet Stoneman's protege uh, by the name of Silas Lynch. The title card is... says, Stoneman's protege, Silas Lynch, mulatto leader of the blacks. Yep. And like all mulattoes in this movie, he is incredibly evil and ambitious. And batshit crazy. And yeah, <laughs> he's the, the, like, he, the kind of guy who will scowl and sneer and rub his hands together. You know, like... <laughs> Mm-hmm. And now the title cards come fast and thick because we need to make sure that what they're doing is absolutely evil and wrong. Okay, so yeah. the next one is the great radical delivers his edict that the blacks shall be raised to full equality with the whites. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> I told you he was evil. Then <laughs> Senator Sum- Sumner calls. Remember him from nine hours ago? Yeah, you probably don't. Anyway, he's <laughs> forced to recognize the mulatto's position. And the senator urges them a less dangerous policy in the extension of power to the free race. And then Stoneman says, I shall make this man, Silas Lynch, as a symbol of the race, the peer of any white man living. And we start getting little um, poetic um, title cards that say things like, sowing the wind. Yeah. Because they don't have a personal opinion about any of this shit. Of course not. (laughs) 
course not. It's a completely unbiased just retelling of history as it actually happened. So Stoneman gets sick, and so he sends Lynch down to the South to aid the carpetbaggers in organizing and wielding the power of the Negro vote. And uh, Lynch makes Piedmont his headquarters. And uh, we see uh, the next title card, which is called Starting the Ferment. Like, this is the fucking Bible or something. Yeah, right. And what happens? It's called the Black Party Celebration, and it's inducing the Negro Negroes to quit work. Yeah, they 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 walk out they walk away from their jobs and they they were shown the establishment of the Freedman's Bureau which right. in this movie which in this movie is let's give a bunch of free stuff to the black people mm-hmm. you know the title so, card says the charity of a generous north misused to delude the ignorant i don't know steve if i'm making out of this same <laughs> yeah you just got to keep on plugging, man. So then we cut to the Camerons, and uh, they go out onto the sidewalk, and then a bunch of uh, soldiers walk past, and Silas is there, and he says, uh, this sidewalk belongs to us as, as much as it belongs to you. And uh, they show Colonel Cameron sitting there, and he looks after them like, oh, no, it doesn't. It belongs to white people. It does yeah. not belong to you. Oh, my God. And and guess who we're supposed to sympathize with? Yeah. Guess. Ah. Guess, audience. Guess. Mm. <laughs> So, uh, Stoneman, for uh, plot contrivances, is told by his physician that he needs to seek a milder climate, so he goes down to Piedmont. Yeah, because he, even though he's even though he's presumably, like, a member of Congress from a northern state, it's okay for him to just move to South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, fuck it. And, um, you know, you'll notice that there haven't been a whole lot of title cards that have dialogue. Only yeah. every once in a while. Very, rel- very rarely. And I figured, at this point, that we were never going to hear dialogue from a black person, but, oh, I, I, was, I was wrong. <laughs> You're going to hear some now because uh-huh, Stoneman comes down and uh, he gets to Piedmont and uh, they've selected the hometown of Cameron's for where he's going to stay and then we meet some black people the Mammy character and uh, some other guy and both in blackface yep forgot there to were mention no... the majority of the black people you see in this movie are in blackface yeah because there was no such thing as black actors you know no of course not no and so we get this line of dialogue which is yo northern low down black trash don't try no airs on me that's man and then she says something that I can't read. <laughs> yeah, because her dialect goes from kind of offensive to, to just like nothing but ra- yeah, just slurs, just nothing but slurs. <laughs> I mean, so then we get Lynch who meets uh, the little colonel, and then we get another kind of title card that says "The Blacks Conden- Condescension." I yeah. don't remember what happens there. And then the yeah. next one pretty much sums up how we're supposed to feel about Lynch. It's says lynch a traitor to his white patron and a greater traitor to his own people yep whom he plans to lead by an evil way to build himself a throne of vaulting power (laughs) but i don't want to give away too much remember hearing about that in the history books guys Yeah, you know, Silas Lynch, mm-hmm. that guy, that that really important actual character, yeah. actual person in history. Then we cut to a rally for the Southern Union League, where uh, Stoneman is the guest of honor, and then we cut to en- enrolling the Negro vote. Mm-hmm. The franchise for all blacks. Guys, I am not saying this. This is what the title cards say. Please do not mix me up. I've got to keep that voice on. The franchise for all blacks. Then we have some more offensive dialogue with, like, if I don't get enough franchise to fill my bucket, I don't want it know how. Ha 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 ha. See, black people are ignorant. It's funny. And then we got a bunch of love shit. Mm. 
and uh, the bitter memories will not allow the poor bruised heart of the South to forget that they started a war over slavery and lost, that they had their ha- asses handed to them. <laughs> but they, they started a war that they knew the whole time they couldn't win, but they started it anyway because they just wanted to keep owning people that bad. Mm-hmm. And then more and more love shit between people that I don't give a fuck about. Let's cut to something else. Oh, election day. Yay. All blacks are given the ballot while the leading whites while the leading whites are disfranchised. Yep. You know, like actually happened in history. Okay, reviews all yours, Steve. I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it gets worse from here. Um, yeah, you know. You, they get the you, returns. The Negroes and Carper Baggers swept the state. Yeah, sure. Like it happened in, in history. And Silas Lynch, the madman mulatto, <laughs> uh, is elected lieutenant governor. That's what his vanity license plate says. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when we learn that Lynch uh, is kind of falling in love with uh, Sto- uh, Stoneman's oldest daughter. Yeah, Elsie. Elsie. He's got the hots for Elsie. And then we watch a bunch of people read a newspaper where they're outraged that a case was tried before a Negro, Negro magistrate and the rendered against the whites by a Negro jury because it never happened in the reverse ever did it nope. did it history never it never happened where a bunch of white people ruled on a, on a black person <laughs> Are you trying to suggest that given the well-documented and long history of systemic oppression against black people, that it was somewhat a little irresponsible of D.W. Griffith to make this movie where he only depicts cherry-picked and probably completely fabricated instances of blacks doing the same thing to white people? Is that what you're saying? I don't know what I'm saying anymore, Steve. I just want to get to the end of this fucking movie. Okay. (laughs) And I also don't in in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then Mammy gets uh, punished for not voting with the Union League and the Carpetbaggers. And um, there's a riot in the Masters Hall. And then comes what is probably the most egregious racist thing I have ever seen in a movie ever. And how anyone could straight-faced say that they were not being racist when they did it is beyond me. That takes a level of guile. That's like a guile level of 5,000. There's no way. <laughs> you can do it. But they show the Negro Party in control of the state of House of Representatives, which never happened. Mm-hmm. 101 blacks against 23 whites, the session of 1871. And uh, what happens, Steve? What, what What's that like? Order? Uh, civility? Men of no, intelligence? It, no, it's, it's more like black people are animals and they sit with their shoes off and they drink and they horse around and they, they bully eat, the white people they eat fried and they try, they, they pass bills that, they, they pass a law that says white people have to salute Negro army officers in the streets. And then they cut uh, to the help... This is a title card, guys. The helpless white minority. Mm-hmm. 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 <sighs> and then they pass another bill. What bill is that? That's the bill allowing for intermarriage of intermarriage blacks and whites. Intermarriage for... What? <laughs> Mis- Great. And so the next one is... The Grim Reaping Begins. Gus... The Renegade, a product of vicious doctrines spread by the carpetbaggers. We we see that uh, Gus is hanging around the house, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the little colonel says, fuck off. 
and um, he's upset, and he walks to the river's edge because he's in agony, in agony of of soul over the degradation and ruin of his people. There's not enough fuck yous in the world for me to direct at this film. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 quite shocking. <laughs> okay, so what does what does the little colonel see? Oh well, you're gonna love this. Yeah, it's great. Um, while he's sitting there by the bank of the river, contemplating the ruin of his people, that would be white people in the south. Uh, he sees two white children putting a sheet over their heads, and then a group of black children comes walking by, and the white children in the sheets jump. Jump up and they They don't even the black jump children. up, they just move their head back and forth. That's true, they're just sitting there. And the black children are, are frightened to death, like you know, like startled deer in the woods. And they, they got just... scared by dem spooks. Yeah, exactly. And they just because they're very simple, they're a simple people. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. and they run away, and uh Ben, the little colonel, who by the way, I remind you, is the closest thing to a hero we have in this movie. He is the protagonist of the movie. He's who we're he... supposed to sympathize with. He's who we're supposed to sympathize with. He sees these uh white children scaring these black children to death for no discernible reason and he thinks that's a great idea yeah and it says the title card says the inspiration and then we cut to the result and the result is the Ku Klux Klan, the organization that saved the South from anarchy of black rule, but not without the shedding of more blood than at Gettysburg, according to Judge Turgi of the Carpetbaggers. So, um, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the fact that he, that title court sort of drops in. It, it, it implies the the level of violence that the Klan was responsible for, mm-hmm. but it, it all but it it, it then says it. it's all a lie because it was a carpetbagger who said it. Yeah, well, but and. But even without that, it also it presents it as, but it was necessary. You yeah. know, sad but necessary. They had to save the South from those mm-hmm. those black anarchists who had taken control, you know. So they show up at a barn burner and just their presence scares these poor, superstitious, stupid black people yeah. into stopping whatever they're doing and running away. Yeah, just like with the kids. Just like with Batman. Just, because <laughs> because <laughs> robbers are a superstitious lot. That's why he dresses like a bat. Uh, apparently, black people are a superstitious lot. That's why they all dress like ghosts, yep. I guess. Um... <sighs> But then Lynch fights back and supposedly uh, score first blood against the Ku Klux Klan. Supposedly. Mm, not not <laughs> how I remember it. Uh-huh. So now we have more shots of people in Klan outfits doing Klan stuff. And then Lynch says something like, We shall crush the white South under the heel of the black South. And then he accuses, uh, tells Elsie that his lover is part of the band of murderous outlaws, meaning the clan. Yeah. And um, then she breaks off her engagement, right? Because she's yeah, loyal to her father. But she tells him that she won't tell anybody yeah. that, that he's in the clan. She'll keep his yeah. secret identity. Yeah. And then we get a title card that says, Over 400,000 Ku Klux costumes made by the women of the South and not one trust betrayed. Thanks, ladies. So everybody was shit. <laughs> the men Everyone and the was women. garbage. Thanks. They were all awful. <laughs> Great. So then little sister, against her brother's warning, goes alone into the forest. Yep. 
And that's when she meets who, Steve? Uh, she meets that, that uh, ornery old Gus. That renegade Gus. That Negro renegade. That guy in blackface. <laughs> yeah, the, the guy who you keep having to remind yourself isn't supposed to be a white guy. Because yeah. it's totally a white guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, hey, I want to marry you. And mm. she runs away. She's like, no. Yeah. He goes after her saying, I'm not going to hurt you. And so she does what any normal logical person would do. She climbs up to the top of a cliff and says, if you come any closer, I'll jump. And he comes closer and she jumps. She jumps. And the title card says, for her who had learned the stern lesson of honor, we should not grieve that she found sweeter the opal gates of death. Yep. That it was better to die than to be touched by a back black person. She did the right thing, you know. She did, did the right she? thing. Did she? Oh, good. I feel so much bed. better. Don't worry. Don't be sad. Because the and alternative was that a black person would have put his hands on mm-hmm. her. So. so now we have a whole bunch of thing where Gus runs around and hides. And um, the townsmen look for him uh, so that he can be given a, a fair trial uh, in what they call the dim halls of the invisible empire. Yeah, it's pretty invisible. It's <laughs> well, pretty... and it, sound, it sounds like the venue for a fair trial, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> so they catch him, and then they say they have a trial. It just looks like a bunch of white guys in sheets shouting. Then it says he's guilty. Thankfully, we don't see him hung. <laughs> but that's no, what we, they do. We just see them depositing his corpse on the on the steps of Silas Lynch's house. Right, right. That says the answer to all blacks and carpetbaggers. Are, are you guys starting to understand why we don't like this movie very much? <laughs> <sighs> So then Lynch orders the Negro militia um, to have re- the reinforcements fill the streets. And then Stoneman takes a temporary departure to avoid the consequences of what was going to happen, which was a whole bunch of fighting or something. Yeah. And then the clans prepare, and one of them says, Brethren, this flag bears the red stain of the life of the Southern woman, a priceless sacrifice on the altar of outraged civilization. <sighs> I'm Again, not done. The, the outraged <laughs> civilization of the white people. Here I so. raise the ancient symbol of an unconquered race of men, the fiery cross of old Scotland's hills. I quench its flames in the sweetest blood that ever stained the sands of time. Our heroes, ladies and gentlemen. They're the they're the good guys. Then they go out and there's more fighting. <laughs> And fighting, and then Lynch uh, gets happy because he gets to wreak vengeance on the Cameron house because all hell is broken loose at this point. And he's busting up the Cameron house, and he's getting all happy. And then uh, the, the Scalawag captain, remember him from a million years ago? He's back. He comes to arrest Dr. Cameron, the, the kindly master of the mm-hmm. Cameron house. And then Elsie begs Stoneman to have her father intervene in something. I can't remember. Well, they, they capture Dr. Cameron. And, right, and and one of the sisters finds Elsie and says, hey, your father's like, you know, apparently more powerful than the president now. So can you go to him and ask him? In fact, him, I'm not even sure we have a president anymore, do we? <laughs> no, apparently, apparently not. And uh, so so they, they say to El- she says to Elsie, like, basically, go tell your father and tell get him to get the the, uh, the carpetbaggers to release my father. Right. And then what happens, Steve? Because, uh, fuck, I can't. There's so many shots of Klansmen writing. Yeah, there's I a just, lot of that. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, there's two things that sort of happen at once. First, uh, Elsie goes to look for Stoneman, who who has left. Yeah. Uh, and while she's doing that, the faithful black servants, former slaves of the Cameron family, conspire to rescue Doctor Cameron right. from the carpetbaggers in the army. Uh, and, so that's and also happening. also Silas Lynch uh, kidnaps Elsie. Yeah, yeah, because she goes she she can't find Stoneman, so she finds Lynch instead. Because he knowing, wants to marry a white woman. Yeah, like all black men. 
women do. Yeah, apparently. exactly. They're they're after our women. I don't know if you've heard that, but and he's gonna like force a marriage and stuff, and then oh goody, here come our heroes. <sighs> They're, the clan is assembled in full strength. Everyone apparently owns a horse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The the, the, the the defeated people of a war, they they have enough money. They can't afford food, but they've got horses aplenty. Then we have a title card that says, The town given over to crazed Negroes brought in by Lynch and Stoneman to overawe the whites. I can't. Steve, <laughs> let's just, come on, let's push through this. I cannot. Okay, and okay. then a bunch of shit happens, um, and then they show uh, Ku Klux Klan sympathizers who become victims of black mobs, and more lies and bullshit, more lies, 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 more bad lies. <laughs> but then they start disarming the blacks, right? Yeah, which is basically just the clan confronting them, and then the blacks drop their guns and run away. Right, because they're so scary and They're powerful. very fearful, yeah. They're, and, but, yeah, oh, I, hey, the Stoneman not the not the Stonemans, the Camerons. They ran off to a cabin that's being besieged. Yeah, and uh, the the cabin belongs to to veterans of the Union Army, but mm-hmm. they're on the Cameron side because they know that they're being chased by black people. And of yeah. course, the bond the bond between white people is is so strong that even though they fought on opposite sides of the war, the Union veterans will take them in and protect them. That's right. And the Scallywag captain's going to bust in there and I guess kill him or something. I guess. And th- then the clan arrives and saves them. And then we have a parade. Mm-hmm. A clan parade. Yep. Well, don't forget they uh, they rescue Elsie too. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, they rescue Elsie and they're in the parade too. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. There's there's a the parade of heroes. And then we cut to the next election, in which we see black people coming out of their homes to vote, and they see a long line of armed clansmen, and then they slink off back to their homes. Yep. And then we cut to a double honeymoon at the sea's edge where we see that the people who were supposed to get married that we were supposed to give a fuck about are now getting married, right? Yeah. And one of, only one of them is sitting at the sea edge. The other one's sitting in, I don't know, nebulous, <laughs> nebulous living room or something. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're sitting in a badly double-exposed shot. Is what? Oh, yeah, they are. Is what they're sitting in. And so then we get what is probably the most perplexing, stupid, and baffling things I've ever seen in a movie. And I, you know me, we, we, we've seen metaphor before. We've sat yeah. through Metropolis, and that thing runs thick and deep with metaphor. But in this one, we get the title card which says, Dare we dream of a golden day when the bestial war shall rule no more. And then we see... <laughs> we see a scene... In in which there are some people on one side of the screen that are all like wailing and writhing. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the screen, there's nothing but bodies. There's like a water tank, and all the way in the background, there's like a guy with a sword on a horse swinging ineffectually. <laughs> yeah, not fast enough that it could damage or hurt anyone, but just kind of like swinging it. Like stay clear. And I guess that's supposed to represent war. I right? guess, yeah, war, or death, or something. Something. Uh, yeah. And then we cut to button step. The gentle prince in the hall of brotherly love in the city of peace. Aww. And then we cut to a bunch of people on the stairwell, or stair, uh, like a temple entrance, and a gigantic Jesus Christ in the background. Yeah, I never realized that Jesus was so tall. <laughs> He's a big dude. We actually crossfade so that we can see that it's actually supposed to be Jesus in case someone's like, who's that guy all the way in the back? Who's the giant in the background? So they fade out the the people on the stairs and and we can just see him standing there with his arms open. Like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Don't put me in this. What are you? Why am I in this movie? How dare you bring up my name? (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. No, no. (laughs) 
Fade me out. We cut to a weird shot of the little colonel and his little colonelette sitting by by the seaside, and then they superimpose the city in on the side. It, uh, yeah, I yeah. Steve, help me with this. <laughs> I guess it, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like they're looking out at the city of peace. I mean, it's I, it's yeah. It's hard okay, to thank tell you. Because yeah, it's hard to tell because it's stupid and done badly. <laughs> Well, because the t- the technology had not quite caught up to uh, to Griffith's ambition at that point. No, and then we get the final title card, which says "Liberty and Union, one and inseparable, now and forever." Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. The end. The, the end. The end. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> That's why his arms are out. He was shooing everyone out. He's Movie's like, "This over. is Get over." Out. Movie's <laughs> over. Get the most, fuck out. Most of the movie happened when Jesus wasn't paying attention. He looked back and he was like, oh my god. He Do you have to, any other awful oh. things to say? Go. Do you want to make up some more history? Please don't tell my story. <laughs> Leave me out of it, please. So, Steve, mm-hmm. what is your opinion of this 1915 movie classic taught by every film studies teacher ever? Mm. Birth of a Nation. <sighs> Well, I'll start with the good parts, because that won't take as long. Oh, goody. Um, the reason why we still have to talk about this movie is that it was very uh, technically influential. It was, it was in many ways, the first modern movie. And D.W. Griffiths was able to... He didn't really invent very many techniques, but he was able to synthesize a lot of techniques that had been being experimented with in the first decade of the 20th century and use them and refine them to tell a story that was of great epic scope and was a, a very, you know, like a, a narrative story that had a beginning and a middle and an end and um, it used it, it was either the first movie to use or the first movie to use extensive to make extensive use of things like, you know different camera angles, close-ups and wide shots uh, the camera being uh, mounted like on a dolly, doing panning shots or tracking shots, staging big epic battle scenes outdoors, uh, shooting at night, all kinds of technical things that now we take for granted and plus, you know, editing techniques like cross-cutting to to build suspense or to show us things that are happening in different locations simultaneously. So, um, it and of course, it also created a couple of uh, historical reenactments like Lincoln signing documents or the end of the Civil War with Lee surrendering to Grant that are at Him least getting kind shot of, in the head while watching a play. Yeah, Lincoln getting the the Lincoln assassination, which which are pretty well. When the staged. blacks took over the South Carolina Senate. Yeah, Senate, you know that. Yeah, that <laughs> exactly that. That, that uh, historical stuff, right? That historical event that totally really happened. Um, so, and, and those are well composed, you know, the shots are well done and they're, they're very, I mean, they're they're not well done in terms of, like, that's obviously not what that stuff looked like, because especially like the, the Lincoln scene where he signs the proclamation to call up the 75,000 troops, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's the, sh- the shot is blocked like it's a painting, where like mm-hmm. everybody's standing just so, so you can see everybody All in the background. All of these, these shots are blocked like they're fucking painting. Yeah, they're basically like tableaus you know and mm-hmm. and uh but but you know they're, they're, they have a certain effect you know because it's it, remember this was 1915 so this was still within the living memory of many people remembering the civil war remembering abraham hey Lincoln. So, many people who used to be fucking slaves yeah that's true that's true so so we have to talk about it because of the technical importance of it now having said that Fuck this movie. <laughs> Fuck this movie. This, I don't think, I, I told you this one before we started recording, and, and, 
I will, I have to say it again here. This is not the first time I've seen this movie. I've seen this movie a few times in my life. And mm-hmm. even having seen it already, watching it this time, I was unprepared for it, just how racist it is. And if you have never seen this movie... Don't! And, well, yeah, there, let's skip to the end. If you've never seen it, don't bother. But, <laughs> but if you've never seen it and you intend to watch it, uh, you you uh, unless you happen to be a black person who has actually experienced racism if you're a white person who has never experienced this kind of racism nothing can prepare you for how incredibly racist this movie is uh it is a good i know you've probably heard people say oh birth of a nation oh it's really bad it's really racist no you have no fucking clue unless you have actually watched it you cannot it makes say, gone with the wind look like an naacp meeting oh my god <laughs> I mean, it's not, and and it's it, and the, the the really the really infuriating thing about it is you can see the exact same racist narratives in this movie from a hundred years ago, uh, referring to things that happened a hundred and fifty years ago that we still hear today. the The narrative of of white supremacists has not changed a bit since the Civil War. It's still the 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 paranoia about what will happen if black people get too much power. It's the stereotypes about black people are ignorant, black people are uncivilized, black people can't be trusted. Black people want our women. Black people are coming for our women. If if uh, and somehow the by losing the Civil War and losing the institution of slavery, something awful was robbed from the South. The South is the one is the is who we should feel bad for. That the white South is who we should feel bad for. There's not a moment of this movie for all of the chest beating and hand and woe is me bullshit about how bad white people in the South had it after the Civil War. There's not a frame. There's not a title card. There's not anything that spends any time at all pondering the travesty and the suffering and the disgrace that was slavery and why maybe the end of that was a good thing. There's nothing. There's just uh, a, a, an extended lament for all oh, the, the, the outraged civilization of the white South. Not the outraged civilization of the black South, of black Americans, of the African civilizations that were robbed and plundered to bring those slaves to our shores. Nothing like that. It's all just one big apology for the South starting the Civil War because it wanted to keep owning people. Not and, according to this. Yeah. Oh, no, of course not. Because they leave out the part. They, they, see, that's the other thing. Griffith, for all of the history that he rewrites in the second half, he didn't even have the balls to rewrite history in the first half where he just skips over the part where the South is the one that actually starts the war. He goes right to the the aftermath of the Battle of Bull Run and mm-hmm. everything's just and that we're just into the war. He implies that Lincoln starts the war by calling up troops. He doesn't show us that the first shot was fired by the South. Um, but yeah, I mean it's, and, and the other thing is, okay it's it's racist as hell, it's incredibly condescending, It's it's it gave so much fuel to all of these white supremacist narratives that we still hear today that we have heard this year in our presidential election, the same bullshit that we've heard for hundreds of years, that would be bad enough if it was just an incredibly racist movie. But the other thing is, it's just fucking tedious. <laughs> it's just not even that good of a movie. I mean, the, the the fascinating thing about it is you can see, you can watch it and you can see like the techniques and you can see the editing and the, the, the camera work and you can see, oh, I can see how this was really influential. You can also see that this was a first draft. You can see all of the things that Griffith doesn't know how to do that later filmmakers
filmmakers were able to figure out and refine. Like when he does a lot of that cross cutting, he's especially when he cuts from an interior to an exterior, there's no sense of space. There's no, like you'll see people in an interior, you know, leaning out, like shooting out of a window. And then you cut to the exterior and you have no idea where those people are in, in nope. relation to what you're seeing. There's even, and there's even simpler examples of like characters looking at something in the distance and then you cut to what they're seeing and you're just looking at like a flat shot of a landscape. There's no mm-hmm. sense of where the person is that they're looking at it. You don't get a shot over their shoulder. Like uh, Griffith had not yet invented the reverse shot, you know, and you nope. can really get that in this. So, I mean, it's just, I could go on forever. I'm going to shut up and let you talk because it's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very historically significant movie that nobody ever has to see because except for the technical parts of it, it's just fucking racist garbage. Mm-hmm. Is it my turn now? Go for it, please. It's usually around this time when uh, we review a, a classic film that I say something along the lines of, while I recognize its historical significance, <laughs> I'm not doing that with this film. And there is a reason why I'm not doing that with this film. Most of the reasons why this this film is still taught in film class, the reason why mostly film people who love film or make film know about it is because, you know, they, they, it's part of their instruction. They go, this is where we... This is the birth of modern filmmaking. And I disagree with that for a couple of reasons. Number one, this isn't the only film from 1915 that I've watched. And many of the things that they say he invented in this film, I am seeing in other films in 1915. The use of the close-ups, the use of cross-cutting, you know. The thing that sets this apart, the movie apart from other things, is I don't think it's necessarily technical. I mean, yes, he shot at night. whoop fucking do Big <laughs> fucking deal. The thing that sets this movie apart from all of the others that were made in 1915 is very, very simple. And I think it's the reason why we are still taught it. This movie made a shit ton of money. Uh A shit ton of money. And it was the first film that was made uh, at this scope with this many people and this many people in a frame and this many people marching down the thing and this many people riding on horses and this many people engaged in a battle. No one had recreated a battle like this on screen before. It was spectacle. And there was a lot more spectacle that would come after this. But as far as the technical aspects are concerned, my t- I'm recommending two films from 1915 after this is over. And the reason I'm recommending those two films is because everything that people love to jerk off in regards to uh, A Birth of a Nation having in- quote-unquote invented are present in those two films. And the two films that I'm recommending are better than this. <laughs> they're emotionally engaging. They're culturally, I mean, granted, they're as culturally sensitive as you're going to get in 1915. But this movie does not deserve to be hailed as the birth of modern cinema. There is no single point. I'm sorry, but... Th- I I hate to pop this balloon. There is not a single film that represents the birth of modern cinema. It evolved. There were lots of different filmmakers coming from other countries who wanted to come to the United States and start making films. That influenced film. Film gradually changes. Every once in a while, there'll be a film that kind of represents the change, and that's what this is. It kind of represents the change that filmmaking was, was, was happening. He made an ungodly long film. People were willing to stay in the theater to fucking watch the whole goddamn thing and it was popular it was number one in the box office and held that spot until do you know what movie pushed out number one gone with the wind yeah gone with the fucking wind yep yep (laughs) which is also a bad movie but everyone likes to tout as oh well this one inspired this that and the other thing when both steve and i know that there were other movies in 1939 that better deserve that title oh big time for the love of god the wizard of oz is a much better film than than uh gone with the wind and probably inspired more filmmakers than 
Gone with the Wind. The difference was Gone with the Wind made a shit zillion dollars and The Wizard of Oz when it was initially released made nothing. So to sit here for all of the people who sit here and go oh well we've got to teach about Birth of the Nation because of all of its influences. Fuck you. Do your job. Find the other movies that came out. Some of them are lost forever and we're never going to see them. But there are a few of them and the two that I'm going to be mentioning in my recommendations afterwards are both that you can find both of them on YouTube. One of them is restored to such a degree that it's astonishing how clear that picture is but it is fantastic and it's beautiful. There is nothing beautiful in this film and I haven't even started to talk about its content yet. (laughs) From a narrative perspective this is a ponderous boring script with uninteresting characters. It's shot in such a way that we can never really understand or feel what the characters are feeling because everything is in a vignette. Everything is framed so that there's four people. When when they're doing the scene in which the Cameron family finds out about the death of the youngest Cameron, it's a four shot. Yeah. It's four people in the frame, and the person that we want to see have the reaction is the mother. They show the father read the note, and then he's kind of like, I'm not going to give it to her, and then he gives it to her, and then she gets it, and she doesn't get upset, and the other two people aren't upset. No one's fucking upset at all. When little sister, when pet sister dies, we cut to a shot of the pet sister laying in bed dead, and four people pushed all the way into the background. We don't get a close-up shot of anyone's face, which is supposed to be one of the invention, you know, one of the, the bold new ways of shooting a film in the this film that reflects any kind of emotional state. It's always usually them staring off someplace. So the the repercussions of this, and there are there are repercussions for this because this movie was so controversial. Hollywood backed way the fuck off. They backed way off. There wasn't another one of these films. There wasn't another one of these films that was so mind bendingly inaccurate. You know, Cecil B. DeMille said, "I'm going to make maybe one of those," but he made the Ten Commandments. You know, he he, yeah. he delved into areas of history where no one would say you're full of shit. He just started making things from from history that no one would ever be able to touch and so did Hollywood too no one ever no one else made a movie that was this so racially divisive what it showed them was that you could make a lot of money with spectacle and maybe some people other people uh, you know adopted some of D.W. Griffith's shooting techniques but I've heard people say that everyone owes a debt a debt to D.W. Griffith fuck you learn your goddamn movie history there's another thing that this movie did do that was good and that was it got black filmmakers to start making their own goddamn movies yep. because they were angry there were protests about this film but as far as the film itself it's a god awful, long, boring piece of shit that lies about history. Bottom line, guys, if you think, well, that can't be that bad, I dare you to watch it. It's free on YouTube. I dare you to get through 15 minutes of this film. And there may not even be that much insulting stuff. There is, but there may not be that much insulting (laughs) stuff in the first 15 minutes. But that first 15 minutes is going to pretty much give you a good idea of what the next following three hours are going to be like. Because that's what it is. Long, boring, static cuts. Awkward, stupid metaphors. Flowers flowery language that are supposed to elevate the material but all it does is it comes off as pretentious there's nothing in this film that I appreciate and as far as I'm concerned this is my vote it should not need to be a classic it need that that needs to be torn down and the best part about it is is that for the most part only cinephiles know about it and hopefully in 50 years from now no one will know about it it'll be that movie that came out in 1915 I think most film professors are veering away from teaching about about uh, birth of a nation they may mention it offhand but I I don't think it's required viewing or, or part of the required film curriculum anymore. And that the, the generations of directors who went to film school in the 1960s and they were taught that, they're all going away. Most of the modern ones are just like, fuck you and Birth of a Nation, god damn it. <laughs> so that's it. My dander's up. I'm angry. 
I'm done, and here's the deal, guys. We did this because we wanted to get this fucking movie in our rearview mirror quick, and we've been avoiding it for years now. Yeah. So now that it's done, we have nothing but happiness up ahead, right, Steve? Oh, no matter yeah. how bad a movie gets, it'll never be Birth of a Nation. Thank fucking Christ. I do want to put it up to a litmus test, however. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. It's a, it's another one of those Sophie Choice kind of moments. Oh, boy. You and your grandma mm-hmm. are, are going out to see a movie. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's only one movie theater, and there's a sniper who will shoot you if you don't make a decision quickly. Oh, boy. Okay. Don't ask me why, and it's not going to shoot you. It's going to shoot grandma. Oh, shit. Okay. You turn to your grandma and say, okay, there's two movies playing in the movie theater, grandma. I need you to pick which one. I'm gonna, And she goes, I don't know. You pick. Playing that night in theater one, Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. a revival. New print. Theater two, Heaven's Gate. Ugh. Um, Heaven's Gate. A little red light appears on your grandmother's forehead. <laughs> Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Believe it or not, guys, we we dogpiled on Heaven's Gate. We hate that movie, but I would watch it in a heartbeat before this. Heaven's Gate is a shitty movie, but Heaven's Gate isn't evil. That's true. You know what? That's a good point. Heaven's Gate isn't isn't evil. Heaven's that, Gate that is, is just pretentious, but it's not yeah. it's not pretentious and evil. Birth of a Nation is pretentious and evil and inspired evil. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. The yeah. I mean. Well, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning of, of our show, I mean, there were 56 black lynchings in the United States the year this movie came out. Think about the mm-hmm. historical context in which D.W. Griffith chose to tell this story in a world where... Uh, people were leaving. One guy left the movie theater and stabbed a black man to death. People, and and, and, it, that, and that sort of thing was happening before the movie came out. This is, mm-hmm. this is the world in which this movie was made. A, a powerful, influential, famous white filmmaker, D.W. Griffith, chose to tell this story story that glorified white supremacy and pushed this completely false narrative of history where white people had been victimized by blacks after the Civil War. He chose to tell that story and embolden and inflame racism in a world where blacks were already being murdered by the dozens every year by white people. And it, as, as we mentioned a couple times already, it reinvigorated the real-life Ku Klux Klan. And by the mm-hmm. 1920s, the Klan had its biggest membership numbers ever in five years, it went from nothing to what four hundred thousand or yeah, something like that. It, yeah, exactly. This the 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 harm that this movie caused cannot be overstated. And the fact that a, a, a white filmmaker as influential as Griffith in the world in which he lived chose to tell this story is absolutely mm-hmm. unforgivable. Now, some people may be saying, "But why? What about freedom of expression?" I'm not saying I don't agree with the people who said the film needed to be banned. I'm not saying that that D.W. Griffith wasn't allowed to express himself artistically. We're, we, what my criticism is about is about his choice to make this film at that time and how he decided to depict, to depict people. That's my criticism. It's about the work. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not one of those people who are like, this should have been banned and all prints should have been burned. No, fuck that. He wanted to make it. Someone backed him. He made it. It just doesn't mean I have to fucking like it and it doesn't mean that I, I get to close my ears and, plug, and, and, and close my eyes to what happened after that film was made. No, I, I'm not. I would never say that he shouldn't have been allowed to make it by law. I'm saying that the fact that he did make it means that he's a racist piece of shit. Yeah, and, he, and he has freedom of speech. He does not have freedom from criticism. Yeah, he could. Yeah, exactly. And and you know what? He did suffer that. Yes, because he did. The rest of D.W. Griffith's career isn't um, a progressive line of bigger and better movies. What no. happened was Hollywood kind of turned their backs on him. He was a second unit director eventually, and people just uh, you know they went, "Oh, D.W. Griffith, didn't you found United Artists or something like that?" People knew who he was, but he didn't go on to a storied career, an epic story career. People, this kind of this literally tainted him for a long time with a lot of people. A lot of people who knew that his that his film was bullshit. So Yeah, well that's the know? thing, that's another thing to keep in 
mind is as 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 racist as the country was back then, or as I should say, as much more racist as the country was back then, because the country is still incredibly racist. Uh, but as much as as bad as things were back then by today's standards, there were still plenty of people who recognized that this was an awful film when it opened. You mentioned mm-hmm. you know protests by the NAACP, protests by black folks, white folks as well. There were plenty of people. You cannot use the well, it's just of its time argument because there were plenty of people 101 years ago when this movie came out who recognized that it was not only historically inaccurate but that it was dangerously racist and they said mm-hmm. so and it was boring and it was long yeah yeah so that's it um steve recommend something good get me out of this black mood <laughs> i am actually i'm actually i i i have i i have a, a, a an official formal recommendation and i have kind of an informal recommendation okay um, go for it well the, the 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 official recommendation which is which is a film uh is from two years before birth of a nation i was actually i had i contemplated recommending another dw griffith movie but then i decided fuck dw griffith yeah uh, he did make movies that were better than this but the hell with him uh yeah. i'm recommending actually a movie that came out in 1914 which it, it's it's a short film uh it's like a two-reeler and uh it is the first appearance ever of charlie chaplin as the tramp and it's called kid auto <laughs> races at venice <laughs> It's, back when back when when movies had titles that told you exactly what was going on exactly, in the movie. Exactly. It's the tramp <laughs> at the auto race at, at the auto races in Venice. Um, man eats steak dinner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man washes horse. That's an old favorite of mine. That's right. Um, Every time you bring that up I laugh. It's or you know, uh workers leaving the Lumiere factory. There's a male <laughs> Um But yeah, Ooh, I so wonder this, how many this will is leave. From my, <laughs> this is from 1914. It's the first appearance of, of Chaplin as the little tramp. It's mm-hmm. a really funny movie. There's some cool techniques. He They break the fourth wall at one point. Then it turns out they didn't really break the fourth wall. Uh, there's just a lot of playful things happening in just a few minutes. And I mean, I'm a huge fan of Charlie Chaplin. I Wait, adore are you Charlie saying Chaplin. that there was film innovation before D.W. Griffith's A Birth of a Nation? I know. That's impossible. I would even, I would even, I would go so far as to say, without reservation, that if you look at the totality of his career, Charlie Chaplin was a far, far more innovative and inventive filmmaker than G.W. Griffin was. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so that's my official recommendation: is Kid Races, Kid Auto Races at Venice, the first appearance of Charlie Chaplin as the Tramp. It's only like Can seven minutes. Can you see that for free on YouTube? Yes, it is on YouTube. Absolutely, and I and I, really any, just go watch anything Charlie Chaplin. If you if you watch this movie and you get this bad taste in your mouth about silent movies, and you're just like, oh God, just watch anything mm-hmm. Charlie Chaplin. And or, believe me, this movie will do it. Oh, it will because yeah, like you like like we said before. I mean, not only all the racism stuff aside, like all of this the the sort of negative unfair stereotypes that people have about silent movies are, are in this movie. I mean, the, the, yeah. the overwrought acting. The, the... Some of it is unavoidable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just the, the extent and level on how effective some of the overwrought acting can be. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But uh, so so go 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 check out some Charlie Chaplin silent pictures, especially the one I just said, Kid Auto Races at Venice. But the unofficial recommendation is if you want to see something that tells a, a broadly similar story to Birth of a Nation, but but is smart enough to not side completely with the super racist people. Um, 
and also stars Patrick Swayze. Oh God! I would recommend that Roadhouse. You, no, 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 right? That would be awesome. No, I'm actually. No, this I'm rec- movie broke you. If I you're know. Recommending Roadhouse. Uh, I, well, compared to Birth of a Nation, I would recommend just just watch Roadhouse three times. Um, but no, uh, I'm recommend. I'm making it my unofficial recommendation because it wasn't actually a movie Ooh. released to theaters. It was a TV miniseries. But I would, a silent I, movie version of Roadhouse. Yeah. Oh man, we should do with that. Buster Keaton oh. in, in the in the, the title role. <sighs> Of of what's his name? Dalton. Um, square jaw mullet head. Whatever his name is in the movie. Dalton. 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 You can see the title card where he says "Pain don't hurt." Um, <laughs> but no, oh so, my god, that does work. What? Pain don't hurt would be the name of the silent film version of Roadhouse. That, and that's actually that 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 could totally be the name of a Buster Keaton movie. That totally <sighs> fits. But anyway, okay. But my unofficial recommendation is the the TV miniseries uh, from the 1980s, North and South. Which is oh, yeah. which is total cheese. Like you have yeah. to be in a certain mood. You have to appreciate cheesy bad <laughs> stuff, right? Because it's not good in the traditional mm-hmm. sense. But it's like a big dumb Civil War soap opera starring Patrick Swayze. And it's the MacGyver of Civil War <laughs> miniseries. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Thank you. See, thank you for making the MacGyver reference this time. I appreciate. I that. thought I'd beat you to the punch. I I appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 the same general story of you know the 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 northern family and the southern family and they become friends and then the war tears them apart and then they find each other again it's all that stuff but it's it has the the intelligence and the decency to portray the racist people as the villains and to take a very dim view of slavery and to take a a somewhat more sympathetic view of abolitionists uh and it's just and like i say it's cheese it's fun it's corny it's not good but it's bad in a really good way so if you watch birth of a nation and you feel like you just need to take a shower go ahead and take a shower hour and then watch north and south because it's a nice way to just watch and relax and have some fun so there you go or glory you could watch glory glory That's a good movie. Oh, and you can see you can see black uh, black union soldiers just kill the shit out of some johnny revs with character and and story arcs and dialogue and and importance and carrie elways <laughs> yeah and carrie elways That's right <laughs> And little Matthew Broderick, and he, he has that scene where he he throws a fit in the the uh, requisitioner's office. And <laughs> anyway, well, we're talking about glory now. Um, yeah. Okay, is it my turn to yeah, recommend? Go for it. Okay, now you guys know I pick movies uh, that that I want to recommend from the same year as the movie we just uh, reviewed, and uh, the I'm going to recommend two films because it was a good year for film. Not very many people know that because some of the many of the films don't have not survived, or a single print of the movie has survived. And I'm recommending two because I want to get to the length <laughs> of this three-hour slog. <laughs> so the first film I'm going to recommend was in the top ten for box office that year, and that is called The Italian. Hmm. And it was directed by Reginald Barker, written by Thomas H. Ince and C. Gardner Sullivan, and it stars George uh, Baban and Clara Williams. And it is the story about uh, an Italian gondolier and his tragic life when he comes to the United States to to, uh, you know, uh, make a living for himself. Is it melodramatic? Yep. Um, is it a little racist towards Italians? Sure. But one of the things about it is is that at no point do we ever lose the focus that the Italian character is our hero. We follow his journey through all the awful shit that he goes through when he comes to the United States to try to create a new life for himself. Um, George Biban's character is, uh, uh, performance in this is fantastic. It is shot really well. Remember that bullshit about... Um, <laughs> <laughs> D.W. Griffiths coming up with the uh, with the, cl- the extreme close-up. Well, it's in this movie, funnily enough. So I don't know where, <laughs> where they're g- 
getting that. And the other thing is, is that if you go on to YouTube, you can find it on YouTube, you will find a clear, astonishing print with scenes that were shot outside. Now, this takes place in New York. It was never actually filmed in New York. It was filmed in what was called the Immigrant Quarter of San Francisco and a couple of lo- locations in, in Los Angeles. But they have great... Ex- now, I'm, you know what? I'm getting the two films mixed up. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when I want to recommend two films that I like? Um, but it's a great film. It's melodramatic. There's goofy shit in it. The The Italian is framed by having the actor, George Baban, reading a book called The Italian. You know, it's like a play that you see a curtain open up and he's in his study reading the book called The Italian. And then it ends after all this tragedy and he's just sitting there going, yeah, I like that book. And then the curtain closes. The end. <laughs> That's what you get in 1915, guys. That's what you get. Yeah, a little corny. A little corny. The other movie um, is a crime drama called Regeneration. And that was directed by Raoul Walsh, written by Carl Harbaugh and uh, Raoul Walsh. And it stars Rockcliffe Fellows, Anna Q. Nilsson, James A. Marcus, and Carl Harbaugh. And it's about, uh, and I follows this kid, um, this Irish kid who turns to crime and becomes a gangster. Um, and he meets a woman who changes his whole life. And uh, this is a lot of, again, a lot of exterior shots, a lot of great framing shots. You know, there's this great, there's a great scene in it when he's a little kid where he's just looking out the window out of his tenement house and it shows the street then it cuts to the kid from the outside looking through the window and then it cuts into a shot of the house where they show him turning from the window D.W. Griffith didn't come up with jack shit everybody he did not (laughs) what I just described is called cross cutting okay And this is another movie that came out the same year. It's a great film. You'll find a fantastic print of it on YouTube. I love uh, love being able to tell you guys about these movies because you can get them for free and you can watch the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it engages you. It keeps you engaged. And uh, uh, actually, out of the two, I really like Regeneration more. It's grittier. Um, he turns his camera towards things that are not necessarily that great. There are these fights when he's a little kid and he's getting in a fight on the street. He'll cut to people standing on their stoops reaction reacting to the fight it's just better paced better filmed and the story is more engaging and and you can identify with the people's feelings and emotions and they both happen to be immigrant stories Mm. which were kind of popular at the time of people coming to the united states and that doesn't paint them as being awful beyond you know they don't paint them as necessarily ignorant or not noble you know the in the italian the uh the george bambine character does not is not necessarily incredibly smart but he is extraordinarily noble they give him a sense, you know, a sense of right and wrong. So, yeah, go see those two movies, guys. There's no reason at all to watch Birth of a Nation. Watch these other two movies. Oh, yeah, also because they're only about well, a little more than an hour long each. Yeah. Thank you. Guys who are all dead, probably. <laughs> So that's it. What do you guys think of this movie we just reviewed that's 101 years old? Hey, we, we need to tell them what's coming up next. What? We need, you, I know. Oh. I, I don't blame you for wanting to rush out of here. <laughs> I We've been doing it. We're, we're more than two hours on this piece of shit. Okay. Just <clears> end <throat> it. End it. Okay. Hey, Steve, what do you want to review on next week's show? A good movie. Oh, good. What should we, what should we watch? We, sh- we should do a good movie that's like an hour shorter than this one that we just did. <laughs> 
You have any ideas? Well, um, I'm going to pretend like we didn't talk about this at length yeah. before we started the podcast. <laughs> I was just thinking off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> I think we should do a, a film that is a, a, a critically revered classic and um, considered by some people to be the masterwork of a great American filmmaker and is also technically a biopic. Starring, oh, we haven't done that genre yet. Yeah, and starring one of the great American actors of the last uh, 50 years or so. I think I think maybe we should do Raging Bull. <gasps> but that's a good movie. That's what I'm We've saying. We've been doing a lot of crap. <laughs> I think we we deserve it. You know what? I do too. I think this needs to be the ice cream after the meal of undercooked liver we just ate. Yeah. (laughs) Undercooked, spoiled liver that is going to kill us. Okay, you heard it, guys. If you want to get all the jokes in the next one, I know I told you guys to watch Birth of a Nation. <laughs> if there's any trust left. I'm really hoping you guys never took me, didn't take me seriously and you went, I'll do a lot of things for this show, but I ain't doing that, Jason. Go fuck yourself. But Raging Bull? Mm, that's a spice of meatball. Yeah. <laughs> Check it out. No, that's it. We're going to watch the Raging Bull. Thank God. Mm. Oh, yeah. now I have something to look forward to. <laughs> now I have something to live for. <laughs> oh, that's it. Do you guys agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you guys do you guys do you guys love Birth of a Nation? Is there someone you want me to call for you? <laughs> <laughs> Then please uh, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or go to the Let Me Listen contact page and uh, send me an email and let me know what you guys think. And we love getting your guys' opinion just because we have very strong opinions about this piece of shit that should never have existed in the first place. Hmm. Um, doesn't mean we're right necessarily. You might have very valid opinions as to legitimize the existence of this film. I don't know what it is unless it involves some sort of sci-fi time travel plot in which D.W. Griffith had to make the movie. Otherwise, Hitler would have risen to power ten years earlier and... And then he would have won World War Two. Maybe that's it. That's got to be Look it. Look what I have to construct in order to justify this film's exactly. existence. And there had to be some kind of time travel thing where, like, Captain Kirk and Commander <laughs> Spock had to go back in time to make sure he made the movie, because otherwise... Wait, where? Where Kirk falls in love with D.W. Griffith? Uh, and then Spock says, you have to let him make the movie, Captain. No. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk wants to push him in front of the car, but Spock has to stop him. <laughs> He must what are you doing, movie? Jim? Now we're stuck with that movie forever. Jim. He knows. He knows. <laughs> Doctor. D.W. Griffith must not die. <laughs> but I want to. You know we're hurting bad when we go right to Star Trek references <laughs> at the end of the review. Ah. <laughs> uh. All right, that's it. Uh, thanks, guys, for listening once again. Uh, for let me let me finish. Oh boy, for all of them. Fuck it. Yeah, fuck it for every podcast in, on the planet for late seating. This has been Jason Harding, and go see a movie this week. And this has been Steve Shives, Six Semper Tyrannis. What does that mean? Um, thus ever to tyrants. Oh, I thought it meant that he was gonna get eaten by a tyrannosaurus yeah. rex. Oh, that would have been awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, that would have redeemed the whole movie <laughs> if it turned into Lost World. <laughs> you see. John Wilkes Booth luring a T-Rex down the street towards the theater. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I've been feeding him nothing but Lincoln's underwear for the last three weeks. (laughs) He's starving. (sighs) Let's imagine if you're going to make up history, go whole hog. That's what I say. Yeah. Put a T-Rex in it. (laughs) I would love to see the flowerly language that he would come up for the title card of a T-Rex attacking Abraham Lincoln in Ford's theater. (laughs) Oh, boy. I just, you want to... And lo, the great beast interrupted the peace and tranquility of the theater to sink its savage teeth into the great emancipator's tender flesh. (laughs) (laughs) 
W, are you sure this T-Rex is appropriate for this movie? Yeah, wait until you see what happens when, this, when we go to the reconstruction of the South. <laughs> There's nothing but chimpanzees in these cages. I know! <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be great! <laughs> can we be done? Yeah, we can be done. Oh, bless you. Bye, everybody! Uh, bye, everybody. Late Seating is a Lemmy Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Music by Kevin McLeod. Produced by Jason Harding. You can find more Lemmy Listen podcasts at our website at www.lemmylistenpodcasts.com. You can also find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes under Lemmy Listen. Please like and leave a review. And thanks for listening. This show is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to contribute as little as $1 a month to help fund this podcast, please visit our website at www.lemmylistenpodcast.com and click on the Patreon logo. If you can't, or just don't want to, no biggie.